All right, good morning once again. It is 2023 now, isn't it? Now, just a show of hands, play along with me. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution? All right, quite a few of you. All right, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Now, how many of you have actually kept that New Year's resolution all the way through the year? That's what I thought. Okay, a couple really steadfast people here. That's what I thought. You know, I, I kind of think they're silly myself. If it works for you, then go for it. But uh, it's just the Gregorian calendar saying that it's a new year. Why is that necessarily a certain time that we should resolve to do something you know, better, to better ourselves, to live more healthy, anything like that. But if it works for you, you know, the the fact of the matter is the Word of God has plenty of things that we, as we come to it, as we learn it, we have to resolve in and of ourselves to do. To die to ourselves daily. To die to our own patterns of life, our own selfish ways of thinking, the way that are comfortable to us, that we have to resolve to be obedient and to submit to the Word and submit to our God and what He reveals to us in His Word. And a lot of times those things are really, really difficult. A lot of those New Year's resolutions are achievable goals. These things that are maybe just out of sight, but we know over the course of 365 days we may be able to keep them. But a lot of the things that uh, we have to come to the end of ourselves in the Word are things that we are incapable of doing without the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And this passage is no different. This is no exception. But let's all of us resolve as we come before this to just say, Lord, you know, whatever you're teaching me here, whatever you're working in my heart, I'm going to resolve to do with your power that is within me. And we're back in 1 Peter chapter 3 as we've been walking through 1 Peter. And before we start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come uh, to your word and learn collectively. Lord, I pray that you would speak uh, through your word to each and every one of us, myself included, that we would all uh, resolve to submit ourselves to what you are saying because your word is authoritative and it is active. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So we start out in this section. It says in verse 13, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? Who Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? Now, this flows directly from that last segment that we covered several weeks ago where Peter quotes Psalm 34. Now, Psalm 34, where he quotes, it says, uh, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, which are all things that, that we desire, he basically says, do good. Seek peace. Pursue truth. Pursue peace. Tell the truth. Basically, try all of these things. They're, they're pleasing to God. They're righteous. They're good for your health. And generally, people will get along with you if you live this way. So here, Peter transitions from that in verse 13. He asks now, who, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? If you are enthusiastic about doing the right thing. If your life is marked by a zeal for kindness, for unselfishness, for generosity, for honesty and integrity. You know, as a general principle, the world will see even unbelievers, even those who are hostile to the gospel will see that characteristic, see those behaviors in you, and they'll honor that to a certain degree. It's certainly unusual and extreme behavior, even by the world standards, to attack people for exhibiting such noble behaviors. But 
you know, as Proverbs 16, 7 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. But this doesn't make us immune from opposition or hatred or false accusation. It doesn't. As a general principle, it's a great way to get along with people around you. It's a great way to make friends and influence others, but this does not make us immune for opposition or hatred or false accusation or suffering at the hands of others. That's why Peter says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, we know that we're guaranteed suffering in this world, right? All of us. I mean, if we do another show of hands, how many of you have suffered to some degree? That's 100% of us. From the moment you take your first breath all the way till you take your last, we're guaranteed suffering. Why? Because this world is sin-cursed. This world awaits the return of the Savior King. And in the meantime, before we wait the full redemption, we're going to suffer everything from bloody noses to canker sores and hangnails all the way to broken bones and diseases. And we're going to share this planet with other people who will cheat us and malign us and cut us down. And, you know, we'll be too cold at times. We'll be too hot. Things will itch and sting and we'll get tired and eventually our bodies will fail us. That's just part of the human experience this side of eternity. But what Peter is specifically talking about here in verse 14 is that extraordinary event when actually the cause of our suffering is our righteousness. When our righteous behavior is what invites the suffering that's brought on by other people. Now you might be saying, wait, I just thought we talked about in verse 13 how if we were righteous and godly, it meant we would suffer less at the hands of other people. Now, what's being talked about here is actually what's contrary to the usual or the norm. It's about when you suffer for your righteousness. I mean, the fact of the matter is, the more you walk in step with God's will in your life, the bigger the target that gets placed on your back. It's just the way it is. The more you purpose to glorify God in every aspect of your being, the more Satan is going to attack you. I mean, the enemy isn't looking to pick off those who are sitting on the sidelines languishing and not bearing any fruit. You know, that they're right where he wants them. They're out of the game. Now, the same can be said about a ministry unit. The same can be said about a church. The enemy isn't lobbing mortars at ministries that aren't going anywhere, that aren't bearing fruit. I mean, is it any wonder that the moment that people start coming in, people start getting saved, people start getting baptized, that's when the opposition starts. So, this is that kind of suffering that we might receive on account of our own righteousness. Now, in the extreme cases, as is present in many places around the world, in fact, we might say the majority of the world, it may take the form of persecution for the faith. You know, in other cases, in maybe attacks to try to undermine the work that we're doing for the Lord. And then in more mild or more personal forms, and when I say mild, I don't mean mild by any degree to diminish it, but there may be discouragement or heartache or things that go along in that, in that when you're suffering for righteousness sake. Now, none of that is fun. None of it is easy. 
None of it is at all what we look forward to, but the Word gives us an amazing promise that when this suffering comes, what does it say right here? You will be blessed. You're blessed. Now, this is, this is a paradox, right? Because most of the time when we, we suffer for righteousness sake, we feel like we're what? Blessed? No, we feel like we're cursed. You know, I gotta admit, I, I struggle with this one myself. I've struggled with it a number of times in my life. There's been times where I'll be at work in a ministry that God has purposed in my life, and just when things start getting off the ground and things start bearing fruit, that's when the problems start. That's when the opposition comes. That's when the difficulty, the, the discouragement, the heartache comes. And we all have this tendency, at least I know I do, this notion in our minds to say, well, well, well this has got to be all wrong. God can't be in this if there's this kind of opposition. If there's heartache, God can't be in this. And I've had to have godly men who I trust to come alongside of me and slap me upside the head and say, what did you expect? What did you expect? In fact, they say, good job, congratulations, you must be doing something right because the enemy is firing with all cylinders at you and those of worldly mind are joining in. So keep at it, stay the course. Because believe it, when we suffer for righteousness sake, what does it say here? We're blessed. Again, that seems so contradictory, so paradoxical, so impossible. In being blessed and suffering are, if anything, opposites. You know, we view blessing way over here, the green pastures. We see suffering as being way over here in the opposite end. But first of all, we got to understand what being blessed means. Being blessed here means something more than just being lucky or, or fortunate or prosperous in the world standards or comfortable or even happiness. What being blessed here emphasizes is that you are in a place of honor. You are honored. In the same way that a decorated soldier is blessed by wearing those medals, he didn't earn those through prospering. He earned them through adversity. We know in the book of Luke, uh, Elizabeth told Mary, blessed are you among women. All right? And what does that mean? Well, we know that Mary was tasked with a very difficult purpose. We, in fact, know from the Word that her heart would be pierced with many sorrows. But she was privileged. She was honored. Most importantly, she was esteemed by the One, the only One whose esteem means anything. When we suffer for our righteousness, we are blessed because we are esteemed by the only One whose esteem matters. In fact, blessing is affirmation from the only One whose affirmation matters. Also, we know that we are blessed because James chapter 1 says that when we face trials of various kinds, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing also seems like a blessing in and of itself. And then later on in this very book, Peter will say that our suffering is producing in us our sanctification. So it is a blessing. But just to recap where we've, what we've already covered, he's saying, who is there to harm you if you, you passionately live out a godly life? Who is there? But even if they do, even when they 
come at you for it, you're blessed. So he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. If your hope and your trust is firmly in the Lord, you can say as David says in Psalm 27, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Asking that rhetorical question, the answer is nobody. Nobody. You know, if that's not you, if, if your light is coming from some other dim source, if your stronghold is some crumbling thing, then you absolutely should be afraid in suffering. You shouldn't read this passage as a comfort. If your source of strength is something that is going to fail you, then you should be afraid in suffering. These promises are only for those whose light is in the Lord, whose salvation is the Lord, whose stronghold of their lives is the Lord. And if that's you, then you have no need to fear. No need to be troubled. You are promised ultimate blessing through suffering. Then verse 15 here says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, what does that mean? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as, as holy. Well, I mean, we know, of course, that Christ himself is, is holy. That's one of the immutable attributes of, of God the Son. But that's not really what this is about. After all, holiness means to be set apart. Some of your translations may say sanctify him in your hearts. And so what this means is that we are to set Christ apart in our hearts. We are to set him apart and honor him as the only Lord in our hearts. What this means is that we are to tear down every idol in the throne of our hearts where he alone lays claim to rule and to submit totally to his rule as Lord. We're to do so in trials, in peace, in suffering, and in prosperity. And it goes on, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. With Christ as our Lord, set apart in that place of honor where He and He alone belongs in the throne of our hearts, we have this opportunity to proclaim Him. We have this opportunity to defend truth. And even in the midst of suffering, perhaps even to those who are causing our suffering, When you serve the king, the king is who you proclaim, even the one who's attacking you for proclaiming the king. That's all you can do. Now, Paul uses the same word for defense here, always being ready to give a defense to describe his ability to answer those who question him. Paul uses it elsewhere in Philippians and his epistles. And here Peter uses that same word for giving a defense. Now, this passage has often been used as one of those key passages for sharing our faith, for evangelizing. There's a couple crucial elements here as we break it down. First of all, we see we are to be prepared when? Some of the time, uh, part of the time, uh, when we feel like it? No, always prepared. A believer must be constantly prepared and ready to respond. You know, they called the, the soldiers in the uh, colonial militia who fought against the, the British Minutemen. Why? Because they like Minute Maid orange juice? No. It was because they could be ready in a minute. When the call of battle was there, they were ready. They were always prepared. And this says we must always be prepared, ready to respond. But we must also be able to do it too, as it says here, to 
people we feel like doing it for or our select specific mission field. No, to anyone who asks. Always be prepared to give a defense to anyone. Often we we talk a lot about uh, and we think a lot about where our mission field is or who our mission field is. You know, and for good reason. We all have different gifts. We all have different spheres of life and we have different people who will cross our paths and maybe the Lord will call us to a different geographical location that will be our mission field. But the bottom line is the lost world is our mission field. The lost world is our mission field. Yes, it may be family members for you. It may be next door neighbors. It may be strangers. It may be some distant geographic location. But God is sovereign. God is in the business of saving lost sinners. And God is working in and through those who belong to Him. And even in and through those who don't yet belong to Him, but those who He's drawing to Him. And He works in ways that we don't always plan for or immediately recognize. So you can strategize all you want about what your mission field is, but the mission field is the lost world. So we should always be prepared to defend the Gospel to anyone who God places in our path. says anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within you. Here we see that This isn't launching into some polemic or some dogmatic diatribe or even apologetics. Not that apologetics themselves can't be useful. What is it that we're proclaiming? We're giving an answer for our our hope. Our hope is what causes people to ask such questions. Our hope is what invites such observations of our life. Our hope is, is what intrigues the watching world. Our hope here is in the context of our suffering. Our hope in the midst of suffering. It may make no sense to those who don't know the Gospel, but they're intrigued by it. They may say, how does this person have such hope despite the trial that they're going through? How can this person be such a light despite what's happening to them? You know, why aren't they throwing a pity party? Why aren't they in despair? And I gotta say, I am so blessed to see some of the people in this church who are going through deep, severe trials in their health, in their life, but they have such an infectious, amazing hope that is unshakable, that is such a beacon to the gospel. And they always cite it back to this is what the Lord has done in my life and has grounded me to give me this hope. And that's because our hope is rooted in the gospel. Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is a product of what the Lord has done in our lives. So our hope is a platform to tell others of what He can do for them. It says here, yet with gentleness and respect. And then in verse 16, it goes on to say, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame having a good conscience. Now the conscience is that internal mechanism that Romans 2 talks about that all people have. All people have it. And it passes judgment on our actions. Good, bad. It either excuses what we do or accuses what we do. Now it says here a Christian must maintain a good conscience. And a good conscience isn't just something that we ask for. 
A good conscience isn't just a, a, a spiritual gift or attribute that we may supplicate the Lord for, like, Lord, please give me peace or wisdom in this. No, it's something that's a culmination of inner assuredness and affirmation that we have about ourselves and our actions because we have conducted ourselves in a righteous manner. So, a good or clean conscience is a product of godly living. You cannot have a truly good conscience or a clean conscience without godly living that leads up to it. And the point that Peter is trying to make here is is that when we are slandered, when you're insulted, when uh, people make false accusations at us, and when our good behavior is insulted and thrown away or spoken about as if it were bad behavior, if we stand before God, the only judge who actually matters, if we stand before Him with a good conscience, knowing we have honored Him, then those who stand against us are put to shame. They're put to shame. They have no leg to stand on in their accusations. Now, they might not even realize that they've been put to shame. Many martyrs have died in the past without uh, their, their accusers and their murderers ever knowing that they were in the seat of shame in that. But you stand innocent and affirmed by the only judge, the only one whose affirmation matters whatsoever, and you will be vindicated by the one who vindicates. Verse 17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, as we already covered, it's no spoiler for anybody we're going to suffer in this life, right? That's just part of it. That's life. But we can suffer as a consequence for evil. We do suffer for our mistakes that we make, right? It's just receiving what, what we deserve. And there's no honor in that whatsoever. Or we can suffer for doing good, which as the word says here, we are honored. We are blessed. We hear, well done, by the only one whose well done matters. But then Peter pivots here to use the example of Christ once again as he's done a number of times. And the ultimate example of unjust suffering and the ultimate example of triumph. Now, these are passages that some people have said are some of the most difficult to interpret what they mean in the Scripture, but the meaning is actually quite plain if we see uh, the context in which this was written. So we start in verse 18, we see, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were safely brought through water. That was all just one sentence. I had to take a few breaths reading it. It's a long sentence. I, I think my, my English teacher calls, would have called that a run-on. And there's a lot in there, so let's break that down. First, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ suffered once for sins. It was not disease or old age or bad luck or happenstance that caused Jesus Christ to suffer. It was my sins. It was your sins. It was our sins. 
He took up the cross willingly of His own accord to pay the debt of our sins. As it says here, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now we covered earlier how, how we may suffer sometimes for acting righteous, but Christ, when He suffered, He was perfectly righteous. He was the epitome of righteousness. But beyond just suffering for being righteous, which He did, He did it for the unrighteous. While we were yet sinners thumbing our noses at God, separated from God by a a chasm that we created by our own sins, He suffered for us, as it says here, that He might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, as it says here, He suffered real pain and real suffering. He died a real bodily death and He was buried in the ground. But then as it says here, but made alive in the Spirit. Now maybe you've wondered before, Jesus is eternally God. We know in the first advent He took on human flesh. Of course, that's what we just preached over the last couple Sundays. And we know that He died a real death on Good Friday. A real bodily death. But since He's eternally God, and since our our soul spirit is eternal, what happened to His spirit during that time between His death and His resurrection? I mean, His spirit didn't go into some slumber. It didn't cease to exist. Of course not. So this is really interesting. Key passage of theology right here. It says he was made alive in the Spirit. And what did he do in his Spirit in that time? Well, this is some amazing stuff. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this is ultimate vindication. This is ultimate triumph. Jesus just got done suffering for righteousness, for the unrighteous, Dying on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, the ultimate extreme example of undeserved suffering, of receiving the mocking, the jeering, the pain, the scoffers, the humiliation, the people who he came to save who were rejecting him and spitting upon him. And lo, in the grave he lay. Satan and his demons must have been throwing a wild party, right? But then Jesus in the Spirit goes and proclaims to the spirits in prison. And did Jesus descend into hell like it says in the Apostles' Creed? Well, actually, kind of yes. But not to suffer. Not to suffer. That was over. It was finished, just as he said, to telestai on the cross. No, he descended there to proclaim victory. Jesus purposely went to tell the demons that He had accomplished victory. This is the ultimate spiking of the football right here. And Peter even tells us why these spirits were in prison. It's because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And we don't have the time to get into this, but we know of the disgusting demonic activity in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. You can reference that on your own time. But with this, Peter brings in yet another illustration. He brings in Noah as a prototype or an illustration. Now, just, just a note here. 
I've mentioned this before as we walk through 1 Peter, but Peter quotes the Old Testament so extensively. He quotes the Old Testament so many times in 1 Peter. I actually was talking about this with one of our elders, with Leo. In, in every segment that we cover on Sunday morning of 1 Peter, sometimes we've just covered five verses, but there's an Old Testament uh, figure or allegory or direct quotation in there. Now remember, Peter is primarily writing to a Gentile audience here. He's writing to an audience that came out of paganism and, and, and Greek false religion and who's come to the faith, yet he's writing to them and he's quoting the Old Testament in a way that he expects them to know what he's saying, where it comes from, as if they're already familiar. He just quotes Isaiah. He quotes Psalms without having to give them layer upon layer of context or background, and that's because he's expecting them to know the Bible. Peter under, authoring this under the instruction of the Holy Spirit, God authoring this through Peter, is expecting these people to know. Here he doesn't have to explain, you know, who Noah was or what happened with the demons in Genesis 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. Or, well, here is what an ark is, and here's the animals, and here's the flood. And the, really the point that I'm trying to make with this is that we as church age believers, we have all of the resources we could possibly want. We can get the Bible in whatever translation we want at any time in the palm of our hands. We have it conveniently. We have commentaries. We have so many resources. Yet we've gotten lazy. We ought to know our Old Testament. We ought to be studying the full counsel of God because all of it, the Old Testament is foundational. It is critical for our understanding of God, of ourselves, of morality, and of salvation. In fact, there is no good news without it. So Peter explains Jesus' triumphant proclamation, his spiking of the football, if you will, over the demons in prison because they were disobedient during Noah's day. And then he goes on to use the analogy of Noah himself as an analogy of salvation. It says, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So God's patience with man waited. God's patience with man waited for 120 years. And during those 120 years, while the ark was being prepared, Noah preached righteousness. Noah proclaimed, yet there were only eight people who would heed the warning to escape. In that time, Noah himself was probably ostracized. He was probably laughed at. He was probably talked about as though he were a fool. But he and the other seven, they were vindicated. They were brought safely through water. But then Peter transitions then yet again from Noah's salvation in the ark to our salvation. Verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter draws this analogy, this comparison between salvation in the ark and in baptism. Because in both cases, believers are saved through the waters of judgment by their obedience. In Noah's case, he took refuge in the ark just as God commanded. And in our case, we take refuge in the resurrected Christ. We can pass safely through the waters because we are inextricably tied to Christ. 
As much safety and assurance as Noah had inside an ark made of wood, we have even more, far more, being in Christ. Now, Peter makes it very clear that the, the mechanical act of baptism doesn't save us. We don't teach that. No, he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but to a spiritual reality. And we talked about that good conscience earlier. And here we come before God with a good conscience, a clean slate, unblemished garments through salvation. We come by doing spiritually what baptism represents, by dying with Christ, by leaving our sins and our old self in the grave and being raised to life with Christ and without our sins, without our old selves. The flood drowned everyone in judgment, yet eight people passed safely in the ark. So too, God's final judgment will be for everyone, but those who are in Christ will pass through safely. And not just through safely and unscathed, but into ultimate glory. This is ultimate assurance. This is ultimate security. This is ultimate vindication. We live in a dangerous world with with all kinds of of perils, natural perils, perils that are the product of evil men. You know what Jesus says? He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But we as believers have the ultimate peace and promise. I mean, sure. Suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering as a result of this world that we live in. Sure, they can destroy the body. They can. But for what? They can destroy the body, but we'll be kept safe in glory for all of eternity with our Maker and Savior. Sure, disease can destroy the body. Sure, wicked people who want to do us harm can destroy the body, but we'll be immediately transferred to a place where we will never suffer again. No suffering, no slander or persecution can possibly take that away. Now, we started out by talking about how even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. God will vindicate you. Talk about how Jesus is the ultimate example of that very vindication. And as it closes here in verse 22, we read, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Long story short, he wins. He wins. So too do those who are in him. Yeah, I, I hope that all of us are making plans to to live in a healthy way, especially a God honoring way with our with our bodies and our choices and our habits and what we do with with our lives and and the time that God's given us on this planet. But let's resolve to do what God has set before us, regardless of the consequences. Knowing just as we talked about last week, we serve an audience of one. Let's pray. We thank you for this amazing promise that during the highs and lows of life, we just come to the Word and know that you are with us. That you have purposed for us uh, a course to walk. 
knowing that as we stand before you with a clean conscience, it does not matter what the world says, what anyone says. We serve an audience of one. Lord, we love you. Lord, I pray that you would tune all of our hearts to walk in step with what you have sovereignly laid out for our lives and that we would be faithful and give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.